Well, Father, we love you. We are so thankful for your love for us, God. We thank you that we are who you say we are. And even days when we don't believe it, days when the lies of the enemy creep in and tell us that we're not loved, we're not chosen, that you haven't forsaken all things to come and find us and bring us back to the flock. Lord, I pray that the truth of, of the Lord would speak clearly through that this morning. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we can depend on it. Thank you that in the midst of just a tumultuous time in our world, in our country, God, that we have something firm to stand on. We have your rock, your word. We know where we can turn for truth, God. I pray that we would do that both as a church and as individual members, as families. God, we would make way for your word in our lives. God, I pray this morning as I teach your word, as I preach, that you would move aside things that are untrue and that I would speak truthfully from your word this morning. Encourage our hearts today. God, we need you. We're desperate for you. We're desperate to be filled up by your spirit. Lord, fill us afresh this morning. God, we love you. We pray things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, Lucky you, I'm feeling a little under the weather today, and so I'm going to be, I'm normally like a 10 out of 10 on the Richter sale, I'm going to be like a 7 today, so you're welcome, um, it's, you can thank the cold, uh, but it's that time of year, isn't it? Anybody with kids, got kids, sick kids? Don't raise your hand, or all the other parents are going to look at you weird. Um, I don't have sick kids, just, just a sick daddy. Um, we'll turn to Nehemiah 3 with me this morning. Um, we are just hopping right through Nehemiah and Ezra today and really looking at, at the rebuilding of the wall. And so uh, I'm going to start today by reading the passage like normal, but I want to give you a couple of pre-read information uh, facts. One is, is that our passage today is basically a list of names, okay? Um, so just show me a whole lot of grace um, and really just instead of focusing on how Coleman is pronouncing the names, maybe just more focus on what is Nehemiah saying through this passage, okay? That would help me out a lot. Um, but just so you know, it's helpful to know the structure. Basically what happens is Nehemiah starts at the sheep gate. Okay, can you put the uh, slide? We have it up there. Um, he starts at the sheep gate. It'll be up there hopefully at some point. And he goes all the way around Jerusalem, and actually from your point of view this way, counterclockwise, and he is working his way all the way around back up to the sheep gate again. And so what he's doing is he is, you can imagine Nehemiah walking around the city with a scribe, and the scribe is recording each name of each person and what they are working on as they go. So what we're going to look at today is why that's important. Why Nehemiah cared and God cared that for all time it's recorded who built the dung gate or the sheep gate or the fish gate or the broad wall or whatever it is. So be listening out for that as we read this passage together. So Nehemiah 3, starting in verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of, of Hasanaah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joyada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besedea, repaired the gate of Yashana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Sorry. 
Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Herimoth, repaired the opposite of his house. Next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashbaniah, repaired. Malchijah, the son of Harim and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section of the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth-Hekarem, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kol Jose, the ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah in the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Ezbuk, ruler of the half-district of Bethesur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rehum, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, the ruler of the half-district of Keilah, repaired the dist- for his district. After him, their brothers repaired, Bavai, the son of Hinadad, the ruler of the half-district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent of the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section of the buttress of the door in the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakoz, repaired another section of the door of the house of Eliashib in the house, in the end of the house of Eliashib. After Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maasiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Biniu, the son of Hinadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress in the corner. Palau, the son of Uzziah, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Parosh, and the temple servants living in Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate in the east in the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Umer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Okaja, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate, into the opposite chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. So this is the inspired word of God. Okay, um, and 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God might be fully equipped, ready for every good work. And when Timothy wrote that, or Paul wrote that to Timothy, I'm imagining Paul was thinking and chuckling about this passage and maybe about 2 Chronicles you know, 2 that just records all the names of people, but there's a reason for this. And as a matter of fact, this passage would not have been skipped over in the synagogues for hundreds of years. They would have read this along with everything else because there's a reason it's in the scriptures. And so what we're going to do this morning, and, and kind of to zoom out a little bit, what, what we do in, in everything is we take a passage of scripture, and we first don't say, what does this say to me? We say, what is the author trying to say originally? And the second question is, well, what is God trying to say through the author? And then, what is God trying to say to me today? A lot of times we jump to scripture and we say, what does this say for me? And if I read this passage right here, it's like, well, nothing, right? Anybody feel like the presence of the Lord shined upon them and they felt like they heard a voice from God in that? I didn't, right? I've read it like 27 times and I haven't had that experience. But what we want to do is say, why did Nehemiah write this? 
And what does God intend that for us today? So the big question that Nehemiah 3 is answering, why did Nehemiah write it, is he is answering the question, who built the wall? Okay? Like not Donald Trump, but like who built the wall? Who here is doing the rebuilding of the wall? And, and what we're going to look at is six kinds of people who join God in his work. Okay? Six kinds of people that join God in his work. We're going to go through all six. So the first one is this. If you have, take notes, write this down. The first one is failures. Okay? It's a good note to start on. God uses failures. From what we know, do you know how many Jewish people Nehemiah brought with him from Susa to Jerusalem? Zero. Zero. Look at Nehemiah 2. Flip back for me. Verse 9. Halfway through, now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. And we go to verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. The sense of this, we're not told exactly, the sense of this is that he's not bringing an entourage. When Zerubbabel came, he brought thousands of people with him to repopulate and rebuild the city. When Ezra came, he brought thousands of people with him to restore order and to restore the people. When Nehemiah came, he came as one man with a guard around him to come. There were no Jewish people that he brought back. What does that mean for us? Why do I point that out? I point that out because that means that the people that built the wall were the people that had been there for some of them 95 years and had failed to build the wall. They'd been sitting in the midst of ruins some of them 95 years, and they had not rebuilt this wall. They were all failures. They, they had failed to do this task. And what had happened is we've been seeing over through Ezra and Nehemiah is they tried, and they were opposed, and they failed. They tried again, and they failed again, and they tried again, and they failed again, and eventually they just quit trying, right? They just quit trying to rebuild. And so this is our first point. Past failure is not an indicator of future success. Past failure is not an indicator of future success. Now, that sounds like a, a business principle. But let me tell you, it's true in the kingdom of God. Did you know that besides Jesus himself, there is not one person on earth that God has used that was not a failure? Every single person that God has ever used in his kingdom was a failure. Moses was a failure, right? He killed a man and then ran away for 40 years. Joshua, failure. Adam and Eve, failures, right? Peter, a failure. Like all of them, Paul was a failure. We're all failures. Every single person God's ever used because all of us are failures. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have broken parts in our lives that we can't put together. We have wounded parts that we can't heal. We have parts where we've, we're wicked and we've strayed away that we can't bring ourselves back. Every single person that God has ever used has been a failure. And yet God in his strength heals the broken. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up the poor in spirit, and he rebuilds us when he saves us. And if you've been around church for a while, you'll realize, I've been in church pretty much my whole life, you'll realize that a lot of us struggle with humility, okay? Um, we're a prideful bunch. Anybody agree with me on that? Anybody else prideful in the room? Struggle with pride? We, we get around and we become hypocrites in, in the midst of the church, and we get prideful. But there's also a group of us that have experienced so much failure in our lives that we actually struggle to believe that God can lift us up again. We struggle to believe that God can actually use our story in his kingdom again. And so what we do is we stay down on the ground. We think that God saved us and said, okay, I'm raising you up, I'm healing you, I'm saving you, you're a Christian now, but you're, you're rough, okay? So can you just stay on the bench and watch the other guys play? Maybe bring them some water, shine the bench, but please don't step on the field, right? And that's how some of you feel. You feel like my story is so messed up and my present is so messed up that God can't use me, and that is a lie. 
Every person God's ever used has been a failure. I'm a failure. Andrew's a failure. We're all failures, and yet God redeems our failings, and he uses us in the midst of his kingdom, right? But real quick, um, hang on. I just got a page ahead of myself in my notes. That's what happens when you use paper. Um, <laughs> but, but what I was thinking when I was thinking about this is, I don't know if you ever taught someone to do something, like taught a kid how to ride a bike or anything like that. Is it easier to teach a kid how to ride a bike who's never ridden a bike or one that's ridden a bike and failed? Which is easier? No, one that has never ridden a bike. If you have someone that has tried something and failed, and they've tried again and they failed again, it is so hard to get them back on their feet again to do something again. I remember uh, water skiing. Anybody water ski in the room? I remember water skiing, and, and my dad, I was like five, and he had me out there with my skis, and I had the two skis that were tied together at the ends, and he, and he was just yelling, like, tell me all the form, and I'd go, and I'd just go, like right in the water, just every time. Eventually, I was just crying. I had water up my nose. Like, Dad, I don't want to do it anymore, right? And I didn't, I didn't ski again for like 10 years, right? Because I failed. My brother started skiing, but I couldn't do it because I had failed. And, and that's what happens in our lives. And I don't know for you spiritually, that could be your story. Maybe it's your quiet time. Maybe it's your prayer life. Maybe it's killing some kind of sin in your life. Maybe it is um, reading the Bible with your kids. Fathers, maybe it's leading family worship. I have failed so many times leading family worship, and it's hard to do. Uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's praying with your kids. Maybe it's memorizing. I don't know what it is in your life. What is it? But God calls failures to get back up on their feet again and with the power and strength of God to continue this task. And that's the first type of person that God used. Hebrews 12, 12 says this. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Did you know that God purposefully makes us weak so that his power will be made perfect in our weakness? I think a lot of times we don't believe that that's true, that God's power is made perfect in our weakness, not our strength. So those of you in the room that feel like you've been sitting on the bench of like, I can't do anything great for the Lord, God uses failures. Second point, God uses leaders. When Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem, there's two things he could have done, but he doesn't do. One thing he could have done is he could have gone to the town square, he could have stood up on a, a, a rock, and he could have called a meeting, called everybody together and said, guys, this is pitiful. The walls are in ruin. Let's get together. And he could have just gotten motivation. He could have done an inspirational speech and got everyone together and said, to the walls. And everyone rushed to the walls and started building, right? Or he could have been like a good leader, right? And he could have gotten out there and started brick by brick, putting it on the walls himself. That's what the prophets used to do in the Old Testament. They started the work on their own. But Nehemiah didn't do that. What he did is in the dead of night, he walked a circle around the city, and he examined it by torchlight. And the next day, he came in, and he talked to the leaders. This is what he said in verse 17. And I said to them, the leaders of the city, he had a quiet meeting with just the leaders. You see the trouble that we're in. This is chapter 2, verse 17, sorry. You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Right, so what happens is, is that he goes to the leaders and he tells them, hey guys, I'm coming from the king and he sent me with all this money. The good hand of the Lord's been on me, but we need to rebuild these walls. We're getting embarrassed by other people. And you know who's getting embarrassed? Our God is suffering derision because we're not rebuilding our walls. Can you do this with me? 
And these leaders responded, and they said, yes, we can. And starting with Eliashib in verse 1, chapter 3, the high priest, like probably an old man, who all he wore was priestly vestments. He's probably a skinny dude, right? He gets out as the first man. He says, I'm going to lead the charge in rebuilding this city. This is the second, second point we have, is that God's work begins with God's leaders. God's work begins with God's leaders. And this is why it's so vital for you, the leaders that you put yourself under. It's really important. The leaders in church, um, the, the elders of a church, you need to know about their lives. You need to know that they're men of integrity who follow the Lord because they're the ones, we are the ones who are in charge of, of leading the charge. We're the ones in charge of studying the word and saying, hey, are we following the Lord in our church? Or are we following our own ambition? When we call you to a work, we need, you need to know that we are seeking the Lord in that work. And guys, a lot of churches have made a bad name for the kingdom and a bad name for leaders. And you need to be willing to come up to us and say, hey, can, can I sit down with you and have coffee and ask you this question, especially those of you that are members? It's so important, the leaders you put yourself under. So here's my question. What type of leader do you look for? You look for someone with charisma, someone who's a good communicator, someone who's been successful in the past, someone who's got vision and a mission statement for the church. Is that who you look for? Well, not according to this passage. What these men were was humble. They were humble. You realize how humiliating it would have been for this cupbearer, this stranger, to come into your town and to walk around your city and to tell you, the leaders, what you should have been doing this whole time, to point out all the broken down walls and gates of your town and to say, hey, this is in ruins, this is broken, you should be ashamed of yourself, you're suffering derision. And yet these leaders, starting with Eliashib the high priest, listened, and they humbled themselves before Nehemiah and before the Lord. That is the type of leader we need to be. Real quick before I move on, there's actually several types of leaders listed in this passage. Look in verse 1, chapter 3. Eliashib, the high priest, he was a priest, he was a religious leader. Then you look a little bit later, we have rulers all over the place. Verse, th- verse 12, next to him, Shalom, son of Halahesh, ruler of the districts of Jerusalem. He was a leader in government. And then also he's a leader in his family. He and his daughters, he led his family out to the work. Look at verse 32. Between the upper chamber and the corner of the sheep gate, the goldsmiths built. Um, the, these, were, these were people in trade, right? The leaders in trade built. And then the next line, and the merchants repaired. These were people in business. The question for us is, is you, you might not be in a, a leader in this church, but where has God put you in leadership? And what role has he given you? Maybe it's in business. Maybe you have employees under you. Maybe you're in management. Maybe, um, maybe he's made you a mom or a dad, and you have a couple of kids. Maybe you've got one Three-month-old newborn, and that is your field. That's the person you're in charge of. How are you leading that field? How are you leading those people? What are you doing with that charge? Are you leading with humility? Are you stepping out in faith with the Lord and leading your family well? And then the next question is, what if you have leaders over you, over you that aren't godly? Right? What if you have leaders over you that aren't following the Lord? Nehemiah 3, you see that it doesn't keep the, the Tekoites from serving. Chapter 3, verse 5. The Tekoites repaired even though their nobles would not stoop to the task. Will you continue to serve the Lord despite leadership that might be over you? Some of you are in jobs where it's like, man, my leader is a godless pagan, and he doesn't love anything for the Lord, but can you serve the Lord in the midst of your work and still honor him? That's the question. So are are you being humble in your leadership today? All right, third person we have, consecrators, okay? I think I made that word word up, but consecrators. Look in chapter 3, verse 1. We've already read this, but then Eliashib, the high priest, he rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. Then they consecrated it, and they set its doors, 
They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. So they consecrated this gate. This is really interesting. So Eliashiv, the primary leader in Jerusalem, the man that's in charge of the religious works, he starts the work, and then he consecrates it. Okay, and what, what that would have been at that time is probably sprinkling some blood, like sacrificing animals, sprinkling blood, or sprinkling water on it, but doing some intentional act to consecrate it. Okay, so, so he is not only showing people that they should work by getting out there, but he's showing them how they should work. Eliashiv, the high priest, is showing them how they need to work. And they're showing them that God's work always begins with consecration. You can write that down. God's work always begins with consecration. What does consecrate mean? Consecrate means to set, take something and set it apart for the Lord. Consecration is what you do with your money, with your 10% tithe. You set the first fruits apart to give to the Lord. It's what you do um, with your Sabbath. Is you set the first fruits apart of your week to rest and to worship the Lord. Um, it's, it's what we need to do in life is we intentionally do an act to consecrate and say, God, all of it's yours but I'm going to consecrate the first part of it to show you that from here on it belongs to you. That's what consecration is. When I was thinking about this, it would make a whole lot of sense for them to consecrate the work if they were rebuilding the temple. They were building the altar and the lampstands and the place where they were going to worship. It makes sense to consecrate it, but they're building a wall, like rocks and stones and gates and bolts and hinges. I mean, think about poor Melchizedek, right? Over in verse, where is he? Verse 13, yeah. Malchijah, no, 14, repaired the dung gate, right? Like not holy work at all. You know what the dung gate was? Anybody? Like the sheep went out the sheep gate, the fish went out the fish gate, the dung went out the dung gate, right? And poor Malchijah is rebuilding the dung gate, okay? With all the refuse of the city coming out there. And that's his job. It's not holy work. It's not spiritual work. And yet it was consecrated work because they gave it to the Lord. Did you know that all of our work is supposed to be consecrated to the Lord? Every bit of it. Whether you're a soldier or a manager or a mom or a gardener or a garbage man, like everything you do is meant to be given to the Lord for his glory. And I'm not talking about you sharing the gospel with your coworkers, okay? I'm not talking about you memorizing Bible verses at your desk. I'm not talking about you reading the Bible with your children. Those are necessary things, and they're glorifying to God, but those are pauses from your work to do something spiritual. I'm saying like the real mundane stuff of life is meant to be given for the glory of the Lord. Did you know that? Like the changing of diapers, the filling out an Excel spreadsheet, um, like taking out the trash, like all the normal stuff, eating, drinking, all the normal stuff is supposed to be done for the glory of God. It's supposed to be consecrated for his glory. So this is our next point. Consecration is the key to practical Christian living. Consecration is the key to practical Christian living. If your theology of living for God only encompasses your quiet time, your prayer list, a worship service, Sunday worship, your grow group, scripture memorization, if that is your theology for obeying God, then you're missing out on 90% of your life because you just got moments where you're pulling away. It's like, how many of you feel sometimes like you're a camel, a spiritual camel, like drinking up at an oasis and then trekking across the desert to drink up at your next quiet time? I do sometimes. That is not the Christian life. We're to be a tree planted by streams of water that are in constant communion with the Father, constantly receiving from him and constantly bearing fruit for his kingdom. So here's the question, how? Like, how do I do that? How do I consecrate normal life? Well, keep a bookmark in Nehemiah 3 and turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Those of you that are new to your Bibles, it's in the New Testament. It's after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you hit Revelation, you've gone too far. 
Colossians 3. We're going to start in verse 17. We got two verses here. There are two ways that Paul tells us in Colossians to consecrate our work. Colossians 3:17. The first one is to consecrate through prayer. To consecrate through prayer. It says, in whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. Paul's saying, whatever you do, it's anything in your life, whether word or deed, anything you say or do, everything, everything. He's repeating this because he's saying, in everything, like sleeping, eating, drinking, going to the bathroom, whatever it is, in everything you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus is the first way that we consecrate through prayer. In the name of the Lord Jesus. That means that, that when you're going about your tasks of life, you're doing it for the glory of God. You're doing it in his name. On your commute into work, it's not a long prayer. It's not reading the scripture as you're driving and saying, God, get, let me give you this day. God, strengthen me today. I want to do today in your name. I want to do today for your glory. It's when you're, it's you're changing that diaper, right? God, this is gross, but let me do this for your glory. It's when you're going home, some of you men, after a long day of work, and you got young kids and a wife at home, and you know you're going to get handed some screaming babies. Like, God, let me do that for your glory. Moms who are at home with young kids, like, let you do this for his glory. Those of you that are going into work at 3.30 a.m. in the morning, God, I'm tired. I'm falling asleep. Let me do this for your glory. And it's while we're doing the work, God, I want to glorify you in this moment. You're walking into a meeting. God, I want to glorify you in this meeting. The second way we consecrate through prayer is with thanksgiving on the back end. We bookend our day, our moments with prayer. God, thank you for that moment. Thank you for that meeting. Thank you for that day. Thank you for that diaper change. Thank you for that discipline moment. Thank you for that sleep. God, thank you. It's a life overflowing with thanksgiving, right? That might sound overwhelming. I mean, I, I have been seeking to walk in this way for a while, and maybe I, I might hit four times a day, five times a day, where I intentionally do this. But let me tell you, when, when you redeem those moments through prayer, it is amazing how God is faithful to enter in and walk with us through them. The second way we consecrate, if you'll go down to verse 23, it says this, And whatever you do, work wholeheartedly as for the Lord and not for men. We consecrate through perspective. The first consecration and perspective is wholehearted work. Did you know that God is pleased when you do your work, secular, normal work, wholeheartedly? When you pour all that you have into your work, God is pleased with that. When you're using the gifts and talents and abilities and time and energy he's given you and you do it wholeheartedly, not half-heartedly for the Lord, he's pleased with that. The second way is doing it for the Lord and not man. What's your perspective? Yeah, you, you might have a boss and you might need to obey that boss. You might need to do what they say. You might need to submit to them. But are you doing that for them so that they can think well of you, so they can be pleased with your works, so they can fill out a good, good report on you? Or are you doing it for the Lord? Those of you that are parents, those of you that are students, are you doing your work for the glory of God? Or are you doing it to please man? Which, let me tell you, is not good. Pleasing man is ultimately about us. Hey, let me please you so you can like me. Let me please you so you can give this to me. Or are you working to please King Jesus? That's how we consecrate in our day-to-day -day lives. And that's who God uses. Fourth person he uses, stupors. I definitely made that word up. Stupors. Look in verse 5 with me. Flip back to Nehemiah 3. Verse 5, God uses stupors. And next to him, next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. This is the one discordant note in the whole passage. You know what a discordant note is? It's like um, Will up here playing the keys. It sounds beautiful. And then he hits one note that's off. He can be playing six notes, but he hits one that's off. All of a sudden, the whole chord is ruined. 
And that's what we get here. It's like you're reading along and everyone's joining in the work and then all of a sudden you have these Tekoite rulers that refuse to stoop to the task. Let me tell you something. In the church, there will always be Tekoite rulers. There will always be men and women who refuse in their pride to stoop to the task of loving God and loving people. It'll always happen. And, and sometimes people started strong. Then they began to drift away from the Lord. So what is the root issue here? Because I think for us, we are all, no matter how closely you're walking with the Lord today, that's no promise for tomorrow. So how do they get there? Well, this word stoop, there are three things we can learn from it. This word stoop basically means to bend the neck. It's a word used with oxen when they bend their neck to go under the yoke to go plow a field. So there are three things we can learn from the word stoop um, that we have to be willing to do to serve the Lord. The first one is decrease. Decrease. To stoop means to lower. You have to be willing to decrease in order to serve the Lord. But these Tekoite rulers refuse to lower themselves. They refuse to decrease to serve um, the Lord in the task of wall building. The second thing that we have to be willing to do is to defer. A yoke is all about submission. It is all about me saying, I, I am bending my neck to put on this yoke so that I can be led by the will of another. Okay? So the oxen, when they put the yoke on, all of a sudden they are not their own. Their will is not their own. They are led by reins that are attached to that yoke, and they cannot go their own way. In order to serve the Lord, you and I have to be willing to defer to the Lord. We have to be willing to lay down our self-will and our self-autonomy and say, God, I don't know what I should do. I don't have what it takes. I want to be led by you. Are you willing to defer? These Tekoite rulers weren't willing to defer to God through Nehemiah, so they weren't willing to serve God in his work. And the third one is deny. The purpose of putting on the yoke is to work. The purpose of putting on the yoke is to get out there and to sweat and to labor and to pull a wagon full of stuff or to plow a field. Ultimately, we're called in the Christian life to deny ourselves. Guys, it is so hard in America to deny ourselves. Like, I wake up in the morning and I have a pot of coffee ready to brew and I drink that coffee and I sit there on my couch drinking my coffee for like 30 minutes while I'm waking up. Life can be easy right? And we've got all the comforts we want here in America, but we need to go against the grain of our luxury, and we need to deny ourselves so that we can serve the Lord. You know, the Tekoite rulers weren't willing to do that. Are you willing to decrease, defer, and deny? So here's the fourth point. True spiritual work always involves stooping. True spiritual work always involves stooping. You will never be able to accomplish anything with God if you're not willing to stoop to serve, to lay aside your comfort. This is what Jesus did. In his example, right before he died, this was 12 hours before he died, they got up to the upper room to do the Lord's Supper, right? And, and, and they're up there, and Judas is there, um, and, and all the disciples are there, and they found out that they didn't hire a foot washer, and their feet were nasty. So they're all sitting there awkwardly. They can't begin the meal with dirty feet. So they're all sitting there awkwardly. No one's saying anything. And then Jesus stands up and he lays aside his cloak and he puts a towel of a servant around his waist. And he gets down on the floor and he, with a bowl, starts to scrub the dirt and the dung and all the stuff off of their feet. He stoops down to serve them. He stooped. He decreased. He deferred to what the Lord had. And he denied himself to serve them. And that is the same way he has called us to serve him. You must stoop to serve God. Here's the fifth type of person, the perfumers. Okay, look in verse 8 with me, the perfumers. Chapter 3, verse 8. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Poor Hananiah. Like, 
Can you think of that? Like, like Nehemiah's going around the wall. He's recording everything. And then, and then Hananiah sees the write-up posted on the wall, like the news story. And Hananiah is listed for thousands of years as a perfumer. Like this is a culture where men are like warriors and farmers and like big beefy men. And he is a perfumer. Like he's a little guy, right? And he's just perfuming his way through some cloak. And he went out there to serve his heart out. And Nehemiah had to write down his, his occupation, perfumer, right? But it's not a joke. Nehemiah did that on purpose. If you'll notice when we read, there was not one builder that was listed. There was not one stonemason. There was not one farmer. It was all these people that should not have been building walls. It was priests, right? It was perfumers. It was goldsmiths, which don't think like a big man pounding a piece of gold. Like think jeweler, right? Goldsmiths. It was um, rulers who lived their life in luxury. All these people, those are the only people that um, Nehemiah listed. I guarantee you there were builders on that wall. Like, think about Hanun over here. Verse 13, he and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and repaired a 1,000 cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. They repaired, like, half the wall, okay? Like, I guarantee you these were big, burly men. They were stonemasons, but Nehemiah doesn't say that because what he wants to point out is that the perfumers did the work, that it wasn't just the men that were gifted for the work that did the work. Right? He points it out because he wants to demonstrate that there are seasons when the work of God requires all hands on deck. There are seasons where you might not be able to operate in your gifting and your desire and your passion when you may be building a wall, right? Um, and so this is that application point for point number five. And I got this out of a commentary. The most important ability in the work of the Lord is availability. Let me say that again. It's kind of cheesy, but I like it. The most important ability in the work of the Lord is availability. When I think about this, he's going to hate me for saying this. When I think about this, I picture Keith Purcell sitting on a fold-up camping rocking chair, rocking a baby back and forth in our first three months, right? He has no idea what he's doing. He's holding the baby like this, and he's just rocking that baby. He's cracking dad jokes in the nursery, making people laugh, and he's just there. He's present. I remember talking to Keith and Tammy and, and saying, we're, this is like in July, and saying, hey, we're, we're just all hands on deck. He's like, where do you need me? I was like, in kids. Say, like, oh no, I thought you would say that. I don't do kids, but I'll do it if you need me there. I said, I need you there. And Keith sat there and he served. And listen, that was the story of our church plant. Uh, we, we had a core team of, of tiny, and we had a church launch of a lot. And we had a lot of people that poured their hearts and souls out for months in our church. Some are still there. Some are still in kids, pouring their hearts out. I mean, we, we, it was like one of those things, even with worship. I remember in July, it was like, hey, you play an instrument, anybody? It's like, I played the flute in seventh grade awesome. Like, get on the cajon, right? Come on. Like, we need all hands on deck for this. Um, and yet God honored that, right? And let me tell you what happened. Some of you, and I'm thinking about particular names, some of you actually went in saying, I don't do kids, and you did kids, and actually you do do kids because you were awesome at it. You knocked it out of the park, and you're still serving there right now because God gave you a gifting when you stepped up to serve, and it became a passion, and now you are able to walk with him. And so let me just call you to, to, and ask you, are you doing things that are uncomfortable? Or are you saying, I don't do that? I don't do that. I don't do that. This is where I serve. And if there's not a place for me to serve my neighbors, my friends, my church, my community, my coworkers, my family, then I'm not going to do it. Or are you willing to stoop? Are you willing to be Hananiah the perfumer and do work that puts you out of your comfort zone? So Nehemiah intentionally pointed us, that out for us to see. The biggest availability in serving the Lord is availability. And the final one is sowers. Sowers. Nehemiah, this is really interesting. As you're reading through, Nehemiah gives the same honor to everyone. Okay? 
He, he records the wall with the dry accuracy of a historian. He doesn't say, now, now Hanun and the, the, the people of Zadok, I mean, they repaired a huge section. They were awesome. They moved real fast. But, but Azariah, down here in verse 26, he just repaired a little section beside his house. Poor guy. He was lame. He couldn't really repair much, right? He doesn't go through with that. He says the exact same thing for everyone. He records it. Why is that important? There are two parables that Jesus told that affirm this principle. The first one is the parable of the workman. It's in Matthew chapter 20. basically says that the that owner of a vineyard went out to the town square, and he saw all these laborers, and he said, hey, anyone that wants to come, I'll pay you a day's wage to come and tend my field. The first hour of the day, they all came to tend his field. He went back three hours later, saw a couple more laborers. He said, if you want to come, I'll pay you a day's wage to tend my field. So they went out and tended his field. He came back again three hours later. If you're out there, I'll pay you a day's wage to tend my field. And then finally, with three hours in the workday left, he came out and he said, saw a couple more of you guys. He said, come on, I'll pay you a day's wage to tend my field. At the end of it, he paid everyone a day's wage. Yet the ones who'd been there for 14 hours complained and were bitter because he paid them the same. That's what happens here. God gives the same honor to all these people. No matter if they built half a cubit or a thousand cubits, God gave them the same amount of honor. Because the principle here, the point here, is that faithfulness always precedes fruitfulness faithfulness always precedes fruitfulness, both in order and in honor. Let me explain that. Both in order and in honor. In order, you have got to be faithful before you are truly fruitful. Listen, some of you can wing it and come out with some pretty good fruit, but it's not the Lord's fruit. It's your own fruit, right? Like I have the ability, Andrew does too, to get up here with zero prep and give an extemporaneous sermon. You'd be like, that was pretty good, right? Whose fruit would that go for? It'd be me. It'd be sowing seeds of Coleman's kingdom faithfulness, faithfulness in your job, faithfulness in your family, faithfulness in the word, faithfulness in the prayer always precedes fruitfulness, but also in honor. When Christ returns and we come to the end of all things and we stand before his throne, the honor will be given to the faithful. So Jesus said over and over and over again in the gospels to those that are faithful, he said, well done, good and what? Faithful servant. Not well done, good and fruitful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. And you might have some fields that you're tending in your life that you may never see fruit from. There are, there are countries, places that the missionaries toiled for decades, their whole lives, and never saw one convert. Faithfulness over fruitfulness. Where are you being faithful in your life? Are you more focused on accomplishment and success and fruit? So to conclude, why do we care that you know who God uses? Okay? So I've just told you six Types of people God uses. Why do you care? Andrew referenced the Westminster Confession of Faith last week, and he opened up a can of worms because I grew up in the Presbyterian Church. So I got another catechism for us. It's the Heidelberg Catechism. And the first question is this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul to God. There are two truths here that are essential for us to understand. The first is that everyone on earth belongs to God. He created all of us. He made us for his glory. He's given us life and breath and everything. And so that all that we have and all that we own and all that we are belongs to him. But if you're a believer in the room, you belong to God twice over. Because not only did he create you for himself, but he also bought you back with his own blood. He also hung on a cross so that you might be his son or daughter. You belong to him. 1 Corinthians 6 says that we belong to God. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. With everything you do, we belong to God. 
our greatest privilege in being a man or woman of God is the privilege of pleasing God with all things. Would you make that your aim? The second thing we have in this question is that our greatest comfort in this life, our greatest joy, our greatest rock to stand on is that we belong to God, that we are not our own, that we don't call the shots in our life. I feel like when I was in my late teens and early 20s, in college, I really wanted to call the shots in my life. Like, I really thought I could. Anybody ever felt that way? Like, I, I understand how my life should play out. Like, I know how to do this thing called life. I've, I've mastered it. And then as I've, I've gone along, I've realized that actually I'm not a real good shot caller. Like, I don't really know what I should do. And a lot of times the things that I plan out so intricately end up turning out way different than I ever thought they would. The things that I thought I have this in the bag, I fail at. It's because I was never meant to run my own life. I was never meant to call the shots with my kids and with my wife and with my family and with my work. It's meant to submit that to the Lord. So that's the second promise we have in this Heidelberg question is that our comfort is that we belong to God. So that we, therefore we can decrease, defer, and deny ourselves to submit to his will in our lives so that everything we have belongs to him. So here's Nehemiah's invitation. If the band would go ahead and come on up here um, before we pray. Nehemiah's invitation is this. Will you join the work of your God who gave you life and breath and everything? Will you take all that he has given you and take it in your hands and consecrate it to the Lord, to give it back to him? Say, God, you own it all already. It belongs to you already. I'm going to give it back to you. So we're going to sing in response to this truth. Um, and we're going to sing and tell God that it is his breath in our lungs. It's his life that we have. And, it's, and as we sing, I would encourage you to, to offer this song to the Lord as a prayer. And as a song of dedication that my life belongs to God. So may we be men and women who are used of God. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray and we're going to sing to the Lord together. Father, confess that so often I view my life as my own. So often I see that, that my money belongs to me, my house belongs to me, my job belongs to me, my family, my kids, my wife, whatever it is belongs to me, and I, and I hold it tightly, and I refuse to let it go. Lord, I pray that you convict me and convict our church that it all belongs to you. Lord, make us men and women who know that you use failures. God, I pray that we would use the leadership positions you've put us in to lead our people in the good work of God in our lives. God, I pray that we'd be men and women who consecrate our days and our moments to you. God, I pray that we'd be willing to stoop down, to decrease, defer, and deny in our lives. Lord, I pray that we'd be willing to serve where we're not gifted, to labor where, we're not, um, where we don't have a tendency towards. Lord, use us in those ways. And God, finally, I pray that we would give it all to you, that we'd be men and women who sow our lives into the field of your kingdom faithfully, day after day. Let us be a church who is faithful. And not a church that's flashy, not a church that's fruitful, but a church that's faithful. Lord, I pray that you'd honor that. God, we love you. I pray these things in your name. Amen.